welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our communities. I'm your host, Rasha Gowal, and joining me today is our special guest, Grace Toulousen, the author of The Body Papers, which won the Restless Books Prize for New Immigrant Writing and the Massachusetts Book Award in Nonfiction. She was awarded fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, United States Artists, the Brother Thomas Fund, and most recently, a residency at Mass Malka. She teaches in the nonfiction writing program at Brown University. Grace, it is such a pleasure and honor to have you with us here today. How are you doing? Oh, um, I'm good. I mean, I just, I'm like on the tail end of my first bout with COVID. So um, today's the first day I tested negative. And in some ways, it's a relief. Like now I know how my body did. So, you know, I'm getting better and, you know, I'm, I'm feeling relieved about that. Oh, well, th- I'm glad that you were able to join us. I know it could be such a tiring process um, on this journey. So thank you for making the time to be here. And I'm so glad that you're feeling better. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really oh, enjoying the podcast. Like there's so much there um, to learn. So thank you for this podcast. Oh, thank you. You know, it's been so exciting because we have some amazing stories to share just like yours. And I think through these stories, we just, we learn about each other and it's an opportunity for us to kind of come together as one, um, you know, as we share all the nuances of life. And, and speaking of journeys and stories, Grace, you're such a fascinating individual to me. And I feel like you have been through so much in your life and have been so open about sharing it. So I want to dive straight into your award-winning memoir, The Body Papers. Now, you talk about racism at school um, after you and your family immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s, I believe. And as we both know, racism is still something that exists today and many of us face. So could you talk to us a little bit about what was it like back then and how are you able to confront or deal with racism? Thank you. Yes, we came to the United States from the Philippines in the 70s and we came to a small New England town. And, you know, I didn't realize, like I didn't have names for things. Like I didn't know that what I was experiencing was racism and racial microaggressions. Now there's words for it, which is helpful. But all I knew is that I felt bad and like really sad and like things would happen and I would want to cry and I'd feel alone. This is when I was a a child and I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, And it wasn't until I was older, like in in high school, that I started to meet other people of color from other towns and we started to have conversations about shared experiences, including, you know, specific experiences of being Asian-American. And that really opened things up for me. It didn't take away what people did, but it gave me an opportunity to connect with other people and like um, talk about what happened and talk about how they dealt with things, which is why I think um, conversations like this and podcasts like this are so great because that's what we're doing. We're continuing to do that is to talk about these times when we may have felt very alone. I love that you mentioned that because I think that through conversations is where we do realize we aren't alone. So Grace, now you're dealing with racism and confronting that at school, but there was also confusion and hurt that you were facing at home, which was, I can imagine, difficult. It was associated with your grandfather's nightly visits. Um, I can imagine this might be hard to talk about, but to to even think about that you had to go through that. So here you are dealing with things at school and then at home. Were your parents aware of what was happening in the house with your grandfather or were you able to talk to them or anyone else about this back then? 
so what was happening was that, um, you know, again, this is why there's that expression of, um, is it like taking candy from a baby or something or taking candy from a child? You know, that there's reasons why the elderly and children and babies and the youth are, are so vulnerable. It's because we don't know. We don't have the tools to protect ourselves. We don't even have the language or the framework to understand what was happening. And so for me, that was um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather um, is a was a pedophile and he assaulted me every night for seven years. Anytime that he was in the house, I was getting assaulted. And so my parents didn't know. I mean, they you know, they didn't know until I told them. Um, but I've talked to a lot of people about this. Like, you know, people are like, well, how could they not know? And I mean, I think if if you're in any family where there's a high level of dysfunction happening, alcoholism or other things, um, there's ways that we can normalize it. Like alcoholism wasn't a thing in my family, but I know families that it was. And, you know, it's there's just a way that we all want to survive and get along and and maybe there's you know a part of ourselves that that is really bent on survival and has figured out like this is what i need to do to survive and so um you know all of us were going through different things in my family we were undocumented there's ways that that we were vulnerable and so perhaps going through the court system would only make us more vulnerable because we already were vulnerable so there was a lot of things layered on top of one another that made it hard for me to speak. Um, even if everything was like green lights and, you know, we were had American citizenship and people were healthy. I don't know. I think it would still be hard to say something. It's just like sexual abuse in the family is one of those situations that I think um, is very common and also incredibly difficult to process and deal with. But I think doing exactly this, which which seemed impossible to me at a certain point in my life, which is talking about it openly, is the thing to do. You know, like I can talk about it and go on, like it's not the horrible thing that I imagined um, when I was by myself as a child. Like, no, I can be an adult and talk about it and I can still have a job and still keep my friends and have a family and a marriage. And, you know, it's, I had this idea that I would lose everything if anyone found out. So every time I push against that, I think it's important to to do that and to know like that's not true. Grace, I, I want to take a minute and thank you for sharing that with me um, because I can imagine that it is difficult going through a situation like this. And, you know, I, I feel, and this is my opinion completely, but I feel like as children of immigrants, there's so many different expectations from us. And to have an added layer like this, I can't even imagine what you went through. So thank you for your vulnerability and um, and, and sharing this in this space. I'm, I'm going to, I have so much to ask you as this is coming up, but you did mention about the legal status um, in this conversation. So talk to me about, you know, how that impacted you? Because was there that situation of, okay, we've got to put family first, so maybe we're not going to address the situation? I mean, what did that mean to you? And um, how did you, how do you, how did you respond to things? So I didn't have confirmation that we were undocumented until it was time for me to get my driver's license. So like, that's when explicitly I knew. And also we were started to go through the process of um, getting documented. This is when President Reagan at the time gave people a pathway towards citizenship. And so um, I was very lucky to, to that my family could access 
citizenship that way. Um, but I think that there's so much that happens in families that are un that's unspoken. So I, I think that there was a part of me that knew I needed to sacrifice things for the good of my family. I had hints here and there that something wasn't right, um, that my parents seemed really afraid of um, authority and police and other people. And there was no explanation why, but I just got the sense of like, oh, we can't trust um, people in uniform. I mean, like I was even scared of like the postal worker, even though he was our neighbor and like I knew him when he would get his, put his uniform on and like, I don't know, he had to, sometimes he'd have to come to the door and, and tell us like, oh, you did this wrong or here's this letter back or, or something. And I don't know, just like even the image of of that uniform like really scared me. I think I've been very traumatized around um, those sorts of authority figures because the stakes are really big. Like you could either not come into the country or come into the country. I mean, like there's all kinds of, of stakes. Um, you could, you know, lose your freedom um, with police. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you can get hurt or die. Like there's just, so for me, there's like a lot of, of fear associations, even though of course, those um, you know people in uniform also do a lot of work to protect people and keep order and, and stuff like that. Not, but you know. So. And Grace, wait, tell me again. So, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? Two. You were two, and then at sixteen is when you found out that the family was here illegally. And then, by what age did the legalization happen for all of you? Where you felt okay, I'm okay now. I don't really need to, this is not a threat to me as much anymore. So the process, even though we were going through the proper channels, it takes a long time. And so I think, so if I started at 16, once I was graduating college, I think I was 22 by the time when I got um, sworn in for my US citizenship. So it was that amount of time that I was I had some documentation at that point. We had we went through the different cards, like the green card, the pink card, and so forth, until I got my U.S. citizenship. Um, but it, I still, until I got that citizenship, I still felt precarious um, because it just well, wasn't. And that's the reason I asked you. Yeah. I, then that's the reason I asked you because I can only imagine this weight that you're carrying, you know, as a child, and then into your adulthood. That that's a lot. Um, there, but there, you know, as we go through your journey, I, my gosh, you're such an amazingly strong, confident woman. Um, as you know, as we go into your family history, I learned even more that um, then there was another issue that came up. You discovered that there was the family thread of cancer. Um, so was that thread from your mom or dad's side? And again, how did you approach the situation? I have cancer in my family too, so I I know what it's like dealing with it and just all the the challenges that come with this disease. Yeah, thank you. You know, I, my, well, my, my niece who um, was two years old at the time, she got diagnosed with cancer first and she had eye cancer and that was sporadic. It was just like bad luck, like one in 30,000 people will get the sort of cancer that she got. Um, but right after that, my, there was, because we were talking about cancer because of my niece, who's close to me, like we all live near each other. Um, then we started having hearing other conversations about cancer in my family. And so this is on my father's side of the family. And um, he, uh, a lot of my cousins were getting breast cancer in their 30s and 40s, which was unusual. And I feel really lucky that 
we came along at a time when um, there was the science to, uh, you know, um, give us gene, um, you know, tests for the BRCA gene, and also mm -hmm. do something to treat this this foreknowledge of um, genetic um, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. And so my sister got breast cancer at 33, I think it is, and that kicked off this protocol where the other, um, my other, me and my sister tested, and we found out that we also carried the BRCA gene, and that we could decide what to do about it. And one of the options, um, I thought the best option was surgery. Um, if you don't have those body parts in you that are susceptible to cancer, then um, then they won't. Then you won't be able to have cancer. Like that's the kind of logic in my head and the logic that I heard. And so you went through surgery as well. I did. I mean, in my thirties, I had um, a double mastectomy, and then a few years later, once I decided not to have kids, um, then I had an oophorectomy, which um, put me into you know menopause right away. So I I took you know I take um, hormones, but it's one eighth of what I would get if I, if my ovaries were still in me. Grace, I cannot help but ask you, where do you get your strength from? Oh, thank you. I mean, just physically and mentally, where, where do you get your strength from? Because I, I, I'm, I'm truly inspired by you and your journey here. Thank you. You know, I, I have gotten to the point in my life at times when um, I didn't feel like I had much strength. Um, there were times like when I had pretty bad depression in college. Um, but even when I was that low, like I, there was still, like I got to really low points and there's still this part of me that I can't explain that really wants to live and really wants to fight and also live well. And I think it's a part of me that gets angry that realizes like, no, there is a good life out there. Like, and I deserve it. And I deserve to enjoy as much as I can of it. Um, Cause I can see it. Like it's so close. Like I, especially when I went to college, like I could see just out the window, this life that people were enjoying. And I thought like, why not, why not me? You know, like, why can't I enjoy that too? And so I don't know how to describe or explain it. It feels connected to my ancestors. It feels connected to the, the people that will come after me, who I care about. Um, and it's not even necessarily genetic. I, there's just this like connection I feel with wanting to live and wanting to live well. You know, I'm so glad you share that, Grace, because I feel like there's a, a piece of there where there's this whole thing about self-worth and self-value. And that is such a magical thing to have that I think sometimes as people, especially women, um, you know, we lose that. So thank you for sharing that because I think that is a really, really important point to anybody who's even listening out there that is maybe going through challenges, just coming back to yourself and realizing that self-worth and self-value. I'm such a huge proponent of that. You know, I also want to talk to you about what gave you the courage and strength to decide that I'm ready to share the body papers. You've been through so much. Um, there, there's fear around it. There's a, there's a lot of different emotions that you went through, but what gave you that courage to say, you know what, I'm ready to share my story and I want to share my story with people. Um, thank you. I think, um, you know, I, I wasn't, I think I was in my forties by the time that the book came out, but I've been a writer all my life. And 
when I was doing research for this memoir, I came across bits of the story that I wrote a long time ago. Like I've wanted to tell this story for a long time, including when I was going through it. Like I found work in high school, essays that I wrote um, that my teacher saw, by the way, um, but we never really had a conversation beyond what was on the page. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I think there's a part of me that knows Probably it's it's the part of me that's a reader because I've read for as long, you know, I don't know, since the first grade or something, I've had a library card and reading has been so important to me and I'll never meet those authors and they're like friends, like their books were so important to me. And I think there's a part of me that wanted to do the same, like to put my own book on the shelf for somebody else who I'll never meet probably. And you know, maybe it's, you know, years and years from now, they'll come across it and it'll be just the thing they need to read so that they'll go on one more day or they'll know that they're not alone and, and just do like one more thing to help themselves that day, something like that. I think it goes back to that point, like you said, of not feeling alone. And I want to even go deeper into that and say, as Asian Americans, you know, I think it's even more important to share these stories because again, going back to the whole part of coming from immigrant families, I know sometimes we're not open, especially in our Asian communities too, right? We just, we don't want the dirt out there. We we, yes. we want to come off as these just very well accomplished, successful families that we don't have these things that we deal with. And that takes me to the fact that you actually went back to the Philippines to find a piece of yourself that you felt was perhaps lost. Talk to me about that journey, because I feel like that's such an important connection to your heritage and your culture and, and maybe what, what made you. Yeah. So I left the Philippines when I was two um, and I really did not consider myself Filipino at all. Um, it was like, I would hear about the Philippines, but it seemed like a dreamland or a magical place. Um, but then I had the opportunity in my, um, in my forties to, to go live in the Philippines on a Fulbright for six months. And it was totally life-changing. I mean, I would not have the body papers if I didn't go there, um, to the Philippines and, and live there. Um, and it was, it was great. <laughs> like if, if anybody, I don't know, the Fulbright is, is this incredible opportunity. People get intimidated to apply, but if you are a U.S. citizen, um, you can apply. There's all it's extensive application, but it was so worth it. And um, I loved being able to be in the Philippines and live there on my own, even though there was um, there were family members around um, physically. Um, you know, it was just it was me and my husband, and then another set of friends who had the Fulbright as well, and. I just loved it. I loved, I, I realized then how American I am. And also that there's just so much to learn and, you know, to be around um, other Filipinos. It was just incredible. But Grace, what's one thing that you learned about Grace? Um, oh my goodness. Hmm. I guess there, there's something that, um, well, I mean, there's lots, lots of things, but one thing that that I tried to do was I, I am Filipino. Both my parents are, are, you know, Filipino, and I tried to be Filipino, whatever that means, and like come off as a Filipino, and I couldn't do it. Like I, I bought clothes there, I got my hair done there, I tried to speak the language. Nope, like I didn't even have to open my mouth, and people could read me, you know. And so I learned about like 
what is culture? What is identity? I had to think about that. It, there's like something ineffable. There's something that's just me that probably screams American or something, even as, as much as I intentionally try to like costume or change or like fit in, it wasn't going to happen. So that's so interesting. You know, I think that's, I think we, I, I, it's fair for me to say too, when I go back to India, they just know. It, I, I speak the languages fluently. I can wear the, the outfits and everything, but they just know. They're like, you're not from here. We know you're not from here. Yeah. Um, what what words of advice at this point would you have for anyone who is dealing with racism or or abuse? You know, it's something that I heard as in high school that I still think about to this day, which is if you need help, you find somebody to tell And if that person can't help you, then you find another person and you keep asking and asking until you find the person that can help you. Um, I had been told I had like only half the message when I was a kid. And so I did tell people actually when it was happening, but I told the wrong people. They were other children and they couldn't help me. Um, And then I find out later that they were also being abused as well. Like this is an incredibly common thing that happens. And so, you know, Decades later, after we're children, I found out like, oh, okay, so those people I was telling, like they were also being abused by different people. So they they couldn't help me. They're also children. So um, the, so that second part of the message, which is you keep telling and you until you find someone who can help you, because there are people who can help. Like that's, first of all, that's their job or it's their mission. If it's not their job, like there are helpers out there. It's what like Mr. Rogers said is to look for the helpers because um, they're there you know, and, and to focus on those people, like focus on the people who are happy to see you, who, you know, love you already, who you don't have to prove anything to, you know, focus on putting your energy and attention there. Don't focus on the people who can't help you or don't want to help you or don't like you anyways. That's some great piece of advice. Thank you. Do you feel like through writing this memoir, you've healed yourself? You know, um, I heard this great metaphor the other day about about healing and um, therapy and how like like when you're in the process of doing healing, it's like there's a coffee table in the middle of the room and you keep bumping into it. Um, But then you do this process and the coffee table is still there in the room, um, but maybe you go around it next time. So I'll never make the coffee table disappear. Um, It's always going to be part of my life, these different traumas and experiences I've had. But for some of the things, I can learn how to go around. And writing this memoir in particular challenged one of the greatest lies of my life, which is that I'm alone and that no one cares and whatever can happen to me and I'll just I just have to take it. Um, And that's not true at all. You know, I'm I'm trying to learn to not be silent, learn to speak up, learn that it's okay if I have a complaint about something, you know, um, and to to say something about it. I don't have to suffer silently, which is what I really learned as a kid. That is so powerful. Um, I'm going to throw out two questions to you. Number one, where how can people get this memoir to read? And then, is there another book that you're currently working on? Yeah. So um, my memoir is available. Anywhere books are sold, um, I particularly love indie bookstores like Bel Canto Books in Long Beach, which ships anywhere. Um, but there's any any indie bookstore is great. Um, and 
I am working on another book. I don't know which one will be published first, but for the past few years, I've been writing every single day in the morning. It's the first thing I do when I wake up. I write with a friend on virtually. Um, we keep each other accountable. And I've amassed like a, a bunch of manuscripts, maybe four different um, book length manuscripts. They're novels. Um, and so I don't know which one will will try to publish first, but it will be about um, the Filipino American community as I experienced it growing up in New England in the 70s and 80s. Oh, how fascinating. How fascinating. And Grace, where can people find you? Uh, is there a website and you have your social media handles? Sure. Yeah, my website is my first name, last name.com. So gracetalusen.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, but more just as a reader at Grace T09. And then I'm on Instagram as well, Grace Tolucent Writer. Um, that's probably where I'm more active. So you can find me in those places and I'd be happy to connect. Wonderful. Grace, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before I close out here? Just to wish everyone a happy new year. Oh, thank you. Grace, thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing your story and your journey. You know, again, I think what just keeps hitting home for me is how you said you realized you weren't alone. And I think it's through these conversations, through your publications, that people truly can feel that sense of community when we are going through difficult and challenging times. So again, thank you for sharing these personal and, and, and vulnerable moments with us. I know it takes a lot of courage to do that. Thank you. And thank you for your work. I am commuting a lot or I, when I'm doing dishes or other things, like I'm always listening to a podcast and it's company. And I really appreciate Aww. it. We appreciate that. For all of our listeners, again, I want to thank our guest, Grace Tolucent, for joining me on today's show. Um, to learn more about her, we have given you her website, her social media. You can Google her. She's everywhere. And like she said, she's available. And we'd also love to hear from you, our valued listeners. Let us know about any suggestions, any future guests or topics that you would love to hear about. We are all about community. And again, do not forget to subscribe on your favorite platform, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, we are here for you. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our Asian and Pacific Islander communities with a voice through media arts. Now, if you'd like to support our program, please do visit AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. I'm Rasha Goel. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to join us next week for another and exciting, thought-provoking Asian Pacific Voices Radio show. Have a fantastic day.